if you'd like to introduce yourself, who are you and where can people find you? My name's Lorna Fife, and I can be found on Instagram at Lorna underscore Fife. And Fife is F Y F F. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's the best introduction so far, with a spelling included. <laughs> so, I guess um, we are an unlikely friendship. So, would you like to tell people how we found each other? How we know each other? Yeah. So, in March 2020, I instinctively knew that something was very, very wrong. And, in fact, a feeling of terror actually gripped me. Um, when I thought of the extenuating circumstances of what I actually realised was happening. I then spent from March 2020 until um, I think it was December 2020 speaking to people, um, trying to communicate with people in any way I could. I didn't know what WhatsApp was. I knew, well, I'd heard of it. I heard of Instagram, but I didn't know how to access it. And I was told I was crazy um, when I was when I was saying pubs were closed down to stop us communicating. I was called a conspiracy theorist, and I was really desperate one day. And now I just call you a ranty bitch. <laughs> I was definitely a ranty bitch. And I just this sounds crazy. I was in tears one day, and something told me to go to Instagram. And I looked at the circles along the top and I saw that nurse who asked questions. And I called one of my daughters and I said, am I allowed to speak to people on Instagram? And they said, <laughs> do what you like, mum, which I usually do. And I sent Jenna a direct message and Jenna sent me a tutorial telling me how to make my Instagram page. And I'm twice her age. And uh, How old are you? I'm 70. 70, yeah. So okay. you're... 35 and a half. 35, so... <laughs> I'm twice her age, but age is just a number. And we become friends. And wow, she's, yeah, opened up a whole different world. I felt like I'd kind of come home a bit. Sent you little tutorials said, of how to use little videos with the microphone on, how to, how to use. Loads of <laughs> tutorials. In fact, you need to send me more tutorial, tutorials because I'm so shadow banned. Oh, no. I need to make a new Instagram page. Do you know what? You bloody pensioners, there was a woman in, um, correct me, I, I'm going to get this wrong. I can't remember if it was Portsmouth or Plymouth. And she was um, so unsuspecting. She was in... Um, a little hat and this this big coat. There was nothing kind of of detail. It was quite, um, you know, if you were going to point her out, it'd just be like a blue coat. It was quite. She was quite plainly dressed, and she had this long um, skirt down to her ankles and this perm. This, you know, like a, a typical stereotype old person, if you will. And I think she was in her eighties, and she came up to me, and I think she was on like a tent Facebook banner or something. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and it was all you but while I was walking all these pensioners like rebelling against the system yeah <laughs> we've been in it a long time well yeah yeah that's a good point actually maybe that's why you've got the foresight and the, uh, yeah. the wisdom and experience last 40 years especially Just so so 40 years so what, what when's that oh gosh 1980 yeah 80 yeah mm, particularly started to really notice changes where the family was being attacked and uh, you're having to both work 
we used to talk about latchkey kids years ago because nobody was at home and children came home from school and it just it's all culminated in now mm, and it, like modern day life where people are so busy and there seems to be a thing about half a mill house gotta have a half a mill house half a mill house half half a million like are you serious do you know how much you're gonna have to be working for that and then if you have a look at your mortgage repayments and see how much you're actually you might be able to afford the monthly payments but do you have any idea of how much you're actually paying back yeah the pressure that people put on themselves we, we lost our house in one of the crashes we lost our house can't even remember the year i've kind of blocked it out um yeah we lost our house we were homeless we were in a homeless families unit and we were given a housing association property so um yeah had a huge impact i think it was eight in the 80s at some point but i've definitely kind of it's not a memory i like to be revisit actually so we, we won't we won't revisit that one. But the one of the, the reasons why I've um, invited you onto the podcast to um, have a talk is because you're a drug addict. <laughs> well, I yeah, I'm still in treatment for heroin addiction, and I've been in treatment for over thirty years. And I wonder how many people watching that would have thought. I don't know how many seconds we're in. Five minutes. I wonder how many people would have thought that's why you're here. Well, probably not. I've actually spoken at um, two um, conferences, medical conferences. I've actually spoken about discrimination um, within the NHS. When you do present as an addict or an alcoholic, I've had some awful experiences in A&E departments because I was also a teacher for my whole career. And it's... Um, so there's a contradiction in identities there. Completely. They don't match. They don't no. marry up at all. No, they don't. And... I was a primary school teacher. I was a very good teacher. You know when you're a good teacher. And I'm still in touch with kids who are now 40 and um, fond memories. It Could was, you teach now? Oh, I taught all through lockdown. Would you want to? Well, that's a whole different subject now because I remember arguing about political correctness. Um, many years ago and obviously we're not here today to get into what is actually going on now um i think if i was teaching now that's well, the second podcast you booked into after yeah this. okay <laughs> you committed <laughs> yeah but um so it's quite incongruous to think that a heroin addict would be a good teacher and i wasn't using for my whole career but there were times when i was and i was on methadone but there are people in all sorts of um, professions who use nurses, yeah, as as a coping coping mechanism. And I'm only on a very I'm on a drug called Subutex, which is um, they reckon it's better than methadone, um, just two milligrams a day, which isn't much. Um, but I'm not prepared to give it up at the moment. I have uh, certain things going on in my life and. One of the main reasons I'm not pre prepared to give it up is a bit of a kind of a sciencey thing. It's attached to receptors in your brain. And methadone being a full agonist, which is fully on the receptors, this is a partial agonist. So I'm the type of person that does a lot of reading and research. And I don't want it to throw me, coming off it, to throw me into any kind of level of depression. Mm -hmm. 
especially coming up with the winter and you said yeah before and i suffer with the you. winter depression so i'm quite happy to be living my life on two milligrams of subutex but then that takes you into a whole other ball game because you are connected to a service and you are a service user and you have to play by their rules it's interesting you just said then service user and obviously the the association with drugs and being a user i find that pretty abhorrent i actually did a peer mentoring course and i'm with an organization called change grow live and they are countrywide i believe and having been in treatment for 30 years it's changed dramatically over the years um I wouldn't call it a service now at all. And when I did that peer mentoring course and I actually got my hands on the handbook and read it and f- and got a sense of the box ticking exercise that addiction service really truly is. And, you know, I'm a peer mentor and interestingly, I've been given nobody to, to mentor. Um, I only did the course just over a year ago, uh, January 2021. Um, I would like to think I would have been given somebody because I really do think I could potentially Mm -hmm. help somebody. Um, Also, 30-odd years ago when I went into treatment, we had weekly meetings. We would go to the local hospital where they've got the, the unit where you visit. You would see your key worker regularly. You talk about all aspects of your life. Over the years, that's gradually diminished. Um, in fact, COVID uh, just because uh, you have to. There's another element to this. If you don't attend, you don't get your script. And um, for me personally, in health, in in medicine, call it what you like. If you are diabetic, if you have obesity problems, if you have any other type of um, healthcare. Um, this isn't I'm not putting this over really well you're kind of punished if you're an addict so if you miss your appointment or if you um for example if uh, when you go to your weekly meetings um they have to test your urine and if there is heroin in your urine and you're on a script you you can be sort of reprimanded in the past we were warned that if we used uh, they might reduce our methadone I was on methadone then My whole journey, I would say, in treatment has been a journey of shame, if you like. And I don't often, I don't ever sit like I'm sitting now with Jenna and go over this. I don't, it's just something you go with. I wonder if it's, so I've spoke a lot about people placing their values onto other people. And I almost wonder if because they can control or can limit the amount of uh, drug or alcohol intake there's not that level of empathy or compassion yeah. with somebody who can't so I, it's almost like well I I don't I don't do that I don't act in that way I don't need that to fill a void yeah. or to numb or whatever it is so just snap out of it uh, yeah I found the best key workers are ex-addicts actually I've had a couple um yeah, one in particular. Yeah, they they they've been ex addicts and they've had much more insight. But um, over the last wow, over the last five years probably the service 
I, I mean, I wouldn't call it a service. There's a lack of funding. Um, has just become much more impersonal. So when we talk about person-centred care, we talk about um, what milestones that or like what achievements that individual can can do. So, for example, mobility. So let's say you've twisted your ankle and you, you're in a wheelchair temporarily. You know, you've got a cast on, whatever, whatever. So is it realistic to say that you'll walk again? Yes. Is it realistic to say that you'll do a marathon? No, probably not, um, especially if you've never done one before. So although if I'm a nurse and I'm a marathon runner, some it seems like some nurses put that in the, the care plan. So I think that it has to be, with person-centred care, it has to be looking at you, where are you now, where have you come from, and where do you want to be? Yeah. Um, rather than, like you say, just it's not person-centred care. Because... And and this is I get a lot of criticism because I'm not an NHS nurse, and this is one of the reasons why I really really struggled after I qualified because words and actions weren't matching. We were saying that we wanted to treat patients as individuals, yet then it was all tick box yeah. exercises, yeah. and I really really struggled with that. Like you're telling me, and the information I'm receiving is we must treat as individuals, but what I'm seeing and my experience is that's not what's happening. Yeah, totally. And when you say about tick box exercise, if you think about CQC, so the Care Quality Commission, all people talk about is compliance. Mm. Compliance, compliance, we need to be compliant. Are we compliant? Yeah. Is your training up to date? Um, we're not going to be compliant. Nobody says, are we caring? Yeah. Yeah, I've had quite a lot of dealings with CQC over the last four years with the situation with my husband and I've had to um, speak to them quite a, even recently to um, encourage them to go into a facility which I don't consider is giving that care um, facility that's been open 23 years um, and they are investigating but it took a lot of... Um, a lot of emailing, a lot of... Uh, oh, you've not, got to be a dog with a bone. Yeah, which is not really my forte. But um, in in defence of uh, Kimberly, uh, my key worker, um, she does try. You get a sense she would like to do so much more than, than she is able to do. And um, she... She had been trying to encourage me into therapy, which is something I've never ever done. And um, I did seek therapy recently. It wasn't anything to do with um, addiction. It was to do with a situation with my husband. And and I was feeling very, very sad. And um, I approached through just the online... Um, I can't even remember what it was called now, where you just go online and, and do it. And they came back to me and said, oh, you're in treatment with CGL you have to seek therapy through them so it just relegates me age 70 with a teaching career behind me to that addict again even even in something as straightforward as that and actually I have got a therapist and had her for five weeks and she's actually very good and we're not really talking we are talking about um a sadness that I've got deep within me we are you know and obviously addiction comes into it but I felt it was a shame that I was relegated back mm. to to that service you know just um 
dismissed if you like kind of that's what you feel like yeah and I want to talk to you um in a second about identity because I know that's something that um when I was coming up to finish uh, my walking with a sandwich board well not even just when I was finishing it but I was I was more aware when I was finishing it but throughout I was aware that I did not want this to become my identity yeah she says with that nurse who has questions. <laughs> on the van. <laughs> on the van. <laughs> on the mug. <laughs> no, but like, th- this is like a different direction, different conversations, and I'm not kind of like plodding around with You're sandwich boards still. You're much more with still. that. Anyone who knows, she knows that. Yeah. And, and it, I was very, very aware of, you know, all the nice things people were saying to me and how that is very easy to hold on to. And... Um, I almost thought about it, I might have said this um, when I was talking with Rob, almost compared it, not that I'm comparing myself to a Premier League footballer, but when they stop playing yeah, and there's that down. Mm. So I was very, very aware that I'm Jenna Platt, I'm not this sandwich board nurse. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk with you about that. But just quickly, I, I'm just out of curiosity, did any parents ever find out that you were um, an addict? While yeah, you- they did. And how how did that come about and what was their reaction? I lost my job. I was asked to resign. How did they find out? Um, I was actually unwell and I actually went to A&E and it was before GDPR, which I have issues with anyway, GDPR, don't get me started. And the receptionist at A&E was the sister of a mother in my class and in my history it had addiction. And she told her sister, who told the head teacher... I was called to the head teacher's office and I was asked to resign after about 28 years, I think it was. Um, which was really sad. Um, yeah, uh, very sad. But you talking about um, being defined as like that nurse, I-, I liked being a teacher, you know, I liked the... Um, and were you a competent teacher at that I time? I was very... I was always a competent teacher. So that... Um, I, I can understand why she did that. She ultimately I, wants to protect her children. Obviously. It's a horrible thought to think that you have a heroin addict teaching young children. Because all the stereotypes kind yeah. of, you know... But what her lived experience of you was... Yeah. Versus that overriding stereotype, you know, it 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 was a stereotype that got you sat. Yeah, there w- and there wasn't any room for me to stay. N- not when you have a parent knowing that. And I loved my children. Um, I taught up to um, uh, year six. It is now in juniors. I taught in a referral centre. Um, excluded children I um uh yeah what can I say it was a it was a fabulous job it was uh it was different every day and we had a lot actually before the national curriculum came in we we had so much scope because we just did our own thing you know we just um did lesson plans with the head and of course they copied the national curriculum from Australia I think it was about 1981 I'm not sure I can't really remember and it became much more regimented but um, you still, I mean, I don't think teaching's like that now. It is a, another whole ball game, um, really. Um, very different now. So much, so much stuff being brought into school now, into the curriculum that I would seriously take issues with. 
um, having a 13-year-old granddaughter. I get It's like they can't focus on what they're supposed to be there for. Yeah. There's so much fluff. And, and I'm a huge fan of like streamlining. So streamlining processes, streamlining your decision-making. And I just think that it's... There's just so much extra... It's almost like buckaroo. Like, there's only so many, like, yeah. hats and saddles and what are those rope lassoes or whatever they're called. Like, there's only so many of them that you can add on before there's just burnout. It just falls apart. It's too much. Or the the, the, the children start to behave yeah. differently. I have to often speak to my granddaughter. Um, when she tells me certain things that are going on, I feel like I've got to pull her around and say, hold on a minute. But she's bit like her grandmother she's <laughs> questions <laughs> she, i'm sitting in a van which says that nurse who asks questions and when uh, did you tell me when did um because we were talking on instagram for quite a while uh, messaging um i always feel like i have to let people know i don't know why i do that you've really you've really made me think about that jenna you've really made me think about that i because I wouldn't have known. We've known each other. Gosh, I'm getting mixed up in my years now. Uh, Is it two, two years? Two thousand. Uh, it was Christmas 2020. Mm, yes, yes. Or New Year. You just got married. <laughs> you sent me the photo <laughs> of you in Las Vegas. Um, so I, I never would have known. No, I know. I, nobody needs to know. <laughs> I just, you know, I started using when I was 14. Um... There is some background, which I'm not going to go into. I was sent to a government institution at four years old with TB, where some pretty bad stuff happened. And I actually did a project with the government called The Truth Project about five years ago. Um, I was contacted and asked to tell my story. I could do it in any format. I could be interviewed. I could do an email. I could write an essay. Um, I could go somewhere. And I just wrote a story. Well, a truthful story. Uh, and, and they actually, the premise was that we don't want this to happen anymore in these institutions. It was actually a home in Broadstairs, um, which, and it was still carrying on into the 70s. And I found heroin at 14 years old and dipped in and out of it, you know, trained as a teacher um, at various times in my life for various reasons. So I suppose maybe because I was so young, it was in my formative years that I identify as an addict I just identify as that person it's um I'm only really thinking about it now since you've spoken to me about it kind of exploring um do you think it was um I'm just gonna move your mic just a little nudge do you think it was almost because you you speak about shame and it's almost like a, a nervous dog that barks like I'll I'll bark first. I'll yes. warn you off first. Yeah, yeah it is. Like, don't you're going to find out on my terms. Yeah, yeah. I'd, Maybe I'd, with that um, experience you had in A and E. Oh, that's happened every time. That wasn't I've been on in, your terms. Every time I've been in A and E, I won't be uh, that patient in bed eleven who was a teacher. I'll the be addict. that patient in bed eleven who's an addict, and always. Um, and the and my husband. Leg. Yeah. Yeah, always. It's always been that. And I, I've spoken, at, um, as I say, to... Um, they're actually tissue viability conferences, actually. Um, uh, and when I've spoken, I've, I've worked with a doctor from the Royal Free. And uh, I actually... We sit in nice armchairs and they've got pictures of my family on the wall at the back. And I 
say, look, I'm, my name's Lorna, I'm, and I'm heroin addict or, you know, still in treatment and have a discussion and I'm asked lots of questions and it's really it's a really good exchange in the audience there are doctors physios you know OTs digital viability nurses all sorts of people and it's really interesting um to take that discussion and just you know with the pictures on the wall and it wasn't always perfect at home by any means I have to say absolutely bring it coming back to identity and the impact that it's had so we were saying that you would tell people that you're an addict almost, I wonder if that's like a form of protection, control. Yeah, it probably is. It probably is. Um, yeah, I've had, I live in an area where people kind of found out and, but I was still that teacher. I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's complicated. But it is... I think it's all involved with the treatment as well over the, you know, the, um, like you're a lesser person. You feel like you're not good enough. You know, I mean, even looking at the social credit system, if they get their way, which they won't, I would be way down the list on Subutex. Blimey, I probably wouldn't be able to leave the house. You know, I mean, it's, um, yeah, you just, it makes you devalue yourself. Um, do you think um, that was because of a stereotype that De you started to de devalue yourself? Yeah, definitely. Messages that you got from the outside. Definitely. But especially in hospital. Yeah, I know. Especially in hospital. People, I don't know, with, with the, I'm not bitching about the NHS, but this is an observation through my experience. Like, there are many, many very good nurses and doctors and dietitians and dentists and all those ones. However, I think the general public kind of assumes that because you're a nurse or a doctor, that you are this nice, caring, helpful, friendly person that hasn't got any bias within yourself oh, or yeah. any frustration that you just want to take out on someone. And I've seen some some people that should not be working in care yeah they should not be working as a nurse and you know when you said before about oh the the addict in um ward 19 room room 19 or whatever my problem with that is again we were we were always told in our training that labels are not helpful labels are unhelpful because they create ideas um and you form a judgment before you've even met that person mm. But then during handovers, people would say, oh, you know, bed five's been kicking off. Well, instantly, you're on the defence because you're like, well, I'm going to be prepared. Yeah, definitely. Or they're not going to do that with me. So you go into bed five, you know, all ready for a fight, and then they see you all ready for a fight. And, and then got a conflict there yeah. before you start. I had a situation. I was in hospital in May. I had bad poisoning. My, my dog nipped me. I ended up with blood poisoning. And my um, infection level was, I think it was 108. The consultant said it was a grey area. They weren't going to keep me in. They were going to send me home with a cannula in my arm. He put the cannula in my arm and then he went, oh, I'm sorry, have I compromised you? And I said, excuse me? He said, have I compromised you? You're an addict. It hadn't even, con I mean, it hadn't occurred to me. I had a cannula in my arm. I wasn't going to go home and put heroin in it. But he saw me as a 70-year-old, not ordinarily dressed, older woman, 
but he compromised me. So how can we have better conversations? Do we need to have conversations? Because I'm making the assumption that it is in your notes, the um, addict, and the medication that you take and the history. Um, So if, from the doctor's perspective, they've just come on for ward round, they've just read it or they're in A&E or whatever, whatever, he he did that intervention and then something twigged and you thought, ooh. Mm. So he he may have had an experience himself where he possibly did compromise someone who wasn't as far in recovery as yeah, you. Yeah, as me. So how, how I do I had you told think? him I wasn't using, by the way. Right, oh, okay. So I you had were told quite, him. Right. Yeah, before that. I had another situation. I broke two toes last year. I went to A&E. And um, I had paresthesia up my leg. I didn't go when I broke them, but it was driving me crazy. And um, I saw the consultant and I said, I've got paresthesia. He said, what do you expect? You're an addict. I said, I didn't expect that. (laughs) You know, and I told him I've spoken at a couple of conferences. I've got those like thug life glasses coming down on you now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I suppose that reinforces um, when you get situations like that. And that's one last year, one this year. It just reinforces uh, scummy attitude. You know, you feel, makes you just feel like a second-class citizen. You shouldn't feel like that. But you can't get rid of it. It's It's been there for such a long time. Um, yeah. What I've, was my response? Oh, you didn't even bat an eyelid. God, I, my memory's awful. You, you didn't anything. No. You didn't. You talk about shame, and it, it, you mentioned it yesterday, and I quickly had a look at Brene Brown. Have you, I don't know, watched some of her stuff. And um, blah, 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 blah. I really liked her, and then I've not looked into this, so you need to fact-check me, but um, I, I saw on Twitter that she was one of the people that were calling for Joe Rogan to be removed. So I kind of went off her a little yeah. bit, although I didn't actually <laughs> see whether that was true or not. Yeah. So if you're watching this, Brene, I'm sorry if you didn't say that, and if you did... Come on. <laughs> um, but according to Brene Brown, shame is a focus on self and guilt is a focus on a behaviour. Shame is I am bad and guilt is I did something bad. Wow. And I think it's raining. I might need to close that door. I feel both of those. And with shame, so I'll, I'll give you my example in um because it kind of i'm just gonna close that door two seconds this will become a regular part of the podcast now <laughs> i'll get it on a t-shirt just two seconds <laughs> oh no it's everywhere that's okay Okay, we're back. It's it's raining, typical British weather. We'll sort this out. Um, yeah, so I guess the reason why I've gone on to shame after asking you what my reaction was, was um, so that there's two two situations where I felt shame. And let me just go back to that. So shame is, according to Brene, I am bad. So I'll tell you the first one. And... Um, it was when I was doing my general training, so it was part of Chester University, uh, Leighton Hospital in Crewe, and I believe the class was about 65, and we were asked to um, go into pairs, and we were given um, 
like little examples of people, you know, so one might be um, overweight woman in supermarket shouting at baby, prostitute on train, alcoholic, um, begging, or, or whatever, whatever. There, there were all these um, different examples. And I remember um, I'd, I was paired up with this girl and I'd kind of like done all these different kind of scenarios. And I was like, well, you know, you don't know why she's a prostitute and this might have happened or that might be happening or she might be working towards something or whatever, whatever. And I'd kind of like formulated all these little stories about all these people. And the the lecturer had gone round the class. I can't remember how many two before me. And then they'd got to me. And I remember the girl I worked with, because the this answer was different to the rest of the class she then said oh well i don't know she's just done all these different like scenarios and things and i remember the lecturer like i read one out and she started laughing at me and she says you would not do that you would not behave like that and i'm thinking well i would because i've said it and during lockdown um i'd walked to the supermarket and um i've always gone in the car before and but i knew there was a set of stairs at the back of it and i thought oh, i'll just walk up the stairs a little bit of a shortcut oh my gosh those stairs were so steep and on the the top of the stairs was a guy i think it was early in the morning there was a guy no excuse me it was in the afternoon and he had um, a few cans around him. So I'm walking up with my bags, like, you know, huffing and puffing because I didn't realise how steep these stairs were and how heavy these bags were. And I said to the guy, like, oh, how are you? Like, you know, gorgeous weather, whatever, whatever, just a bit of pastime in. And he said, you're the first person who's acknowledged me all day. And I felt sad for him. And then it brought me back to that situation yeah. And I thought, no, I was right. And I, I know I'm right because I know that's what I do. And I'm not saying that I don't have judgments. Of course I could judge people. I would describe myself as the most least judgiest person ever. Yeah, like, I, I would say, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'd reiterate that. People will kind of um, almost confess to me some, at times. And if I think they're a dick, I'll say it. But I will always try and see things from their perspective. If they are harming themselves or other people, I will be very upfront with my response. But of course, when I'm walking down the street, I'm looking at people as much as everybody else is. Mm. I'm thinking, bloody hell, look at her hair, or I can't believe she's got that skirt on. Look how short. Do you know what I mean? But I wouldn't do anything. And I think it's. I think if we say we're not judgmental, we are liars. Mm, and I think it's what we do with that judgment. So that was why I was asking you what my response was. You, and bringing you, you back were, to that story. I remember thinking, because obviously when I saw the circle and looked at what you were doing and what you were saying and reached out to you, I obviously thought you were someone worthy of reaching out to in, in my quest for um, some validation for what I was saying. And you were just... You were just really lovely. You, I think you did make some comment, but it was just really, really uplifting. It was it was just really nice, and I just thought, yeah, it was. You didn't judge me in any way, and you you've never 
you don't do that. That's something you just don't, you don't judge And I people. think, it, for me, and, and kind of COVID cemented this, words and actions and lived experience. You know, so um, that lady with the stereotype and the lived experience of you being a competent teacher, like... I, I think people, because of the pressure of social media, they're almost unable to rely on their lived experience that all of these judgments and stereotypes are just helping them to make very quick decisions yeah. about who you are, what you do, what kind of a person you are. And and I think that you said about um, the diabetic, you know, the diabetic um, in they get it as well they're in bed five it's not just the addicts yeah but we don't we don't individualize people but we, you were saying um if someone's got diabetes and misses appointment or misses treatment or something happens there's they, not that um they don't get a slap on the wrist yeah what am i trying to say there's not that like punishment yeah it's like me now my life at the moment is spending Thursday till Monday, caring for my mum in Wellingborough. And then I come back to London on Monday. My husband's in a dementia psychiatric unit. Um, he got brain damage in a leg operation in 2018. He's been there since January. And it's eight buses. I don't drive, so I spend my time um, travelling to Seagray. And then I go back to my mum's. So I've had to move my script to Wellingborough. And I've asked my key worker if I can have a month script because I have to pick it up if I don't even though I'm only on a tiny bit I need it I'm going to start withdrawing uh, it's not like anything like it's, a, it's only a partial agonist as well so it's not it's not the same as uh, withdrawing from heroin or, or methadone um, but I, I don't really want to do that at the moment at this time in my life and I've asked if I can get a month script just so I haven't got a, like for example this week I'm going to see my back guy in Watford. I'm coming from Wellingborough. My brother's bringing me. I live near Watford. Oh, I've got a spinal injury. I live near Watford. My brother was going to drop me home. And now I've got to go back to my mum's because I've got to be there for Monday because I've got to get my script. There's no flexibility. I can only get a month appointment once for a holiday appointment. And there's no flexibility. I have to have it weekly. And if you don't, if I so if I don't pick it up, um, by Wednesday I don't get it at all I'm punished I've only got if I miss Monday I can miss Monday and Tuesday but I've got to get it by Wednesday if I don't get it by Wednesday I don't get it at all so it comes with strings mm. and I'm not really someone that likes being controlled but I am controlled and I have been controlled the whole time I've been in treatment um, yeah I'm really starting to I've never really explored all this really since we've been speaking about it it's something I kind of kicked to the back of my head um, also now so years ago if you went into treatment you got a maintenance script and so I've been in treatment for 30 years um, but now that doesn't happen so if you go into treatment now say you've, you're, you're a parent and you've got an 18 year old and you go into treatment the government want to give you a methadone script or a subject script for a certain period but they kind of really want you to get off it mm -hmm. you know um, it's, it's, it's very different um, and it is not person centred care no because what I, I can understand um, the need for structure 
Yeah. And I can understand when you've got someone who potentially has um, chaotic disorder. And it is dysregulated. I can understand kind of trying to break that cycle and almost forcing some type of regular contact with a health professional. But then as that person improves, you know, having a look at that person as an individual Mm. and, you know, doing risk assessments and... Yeah. Yeah, and also as someone of my age... With the commitments that I've got to my 90-year-old mum, and there's my children and grandchildren and my husband, maybe the service should be looking at ways of making changes for different situations. It's very blinkered. Mm-hmm. It's very. It's like a one-trick pony. You know, we can't say, well, Lorna's got all these family issues, then, yeah, we can give her, like, she takes her medication properly, she's not using... You know, to be fair, I don't have to go and give urine anymore because we don't go to the service. So I, I don't know whether other people are. Well, they know I'm not using anyway. But it's almost like we need to bend some rules. We need to take another look at addiction services for um, all aspects of different generations. And, and, it's, and especially when I got my hands on the handbook, it's just um, box ticking. I didn't feel there was any empathy in that handbook I didn't feel there was any connection to us as people to us and for the reasons that we you know you don't wake up one day and decide you're going to be a heroin addict or an alcoholic or all the other gambler all the other things that people do and I yeah I, I think it needs a lot of a lot of exploration a big shake up I really do yeah yeah and it's it, it just I just go back to again that person-centered care again words and actions we say we're doing this and I think with the, the box ticking and the compliance and the focus on that, the person uh, then becomes task orientated. And I'm not kind of bitching and moaning about, you know, all these all these people um, who are working in these services, because I think I think that's human nature to kind of, you know, just become focused on I've mm. got to do this, I've got to do this. And then if you're short staffed, like, oh, my gosh, I've really got to like just focus, focus, focus. And you're just so blinkered that you don't have the opportunity to kind of like look up and then just look around. Yeah. I really think my key worker, Kimberly, who's probably going to be listening to this. Hi, Kimberly. Does her best with the tools that she has mm-hmm. to hand. Um, and the, yeah, the limitations yeah, yeah. Of, of what's around you and the amount of support and the amount of people who are also motivated to make the improvements that you want to make as well. There are also um, lots of courses that they run. There are lots of things um, that are are accessible. There's a photography. I noticed today I got an email about a photography course, which is starting today. So they do, I'm probably being a little bit unfair here in just focusing on, well, I'm talking about my my kind of perception. So there, there are... Um, they have like Saturday sessions. Uh, there's a church locally to me where you can go. And um, we did have a trip to South End about seven years ago, which I've always said, like a bunch of addicts, we all got on a coach and went to South End. It was a really nice day. A uh, bunch of people. Sounds like a joke. bunch of people. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and I've been asking kind of ever since, couldn't we do that again? Because it's good to meet up with people and, and, and talk, you know. Um, so maybe I'm being a bit unfair in not speaking about all the options that they do offer, but the actual, it's all very well to get groups and, and do that, but the 
person, the personal. It's not... Um, I think you're allowed to explain your um, your experience and it's not that you're showing a lack of appreciation for what you've received. However, there are areas that can be improved and I think that I think that it's by not having these conversations yeah. that people then they one of the things for me was within care of the elderly nobody wanted to complain because if you complained you might not look after my mum yeah you might not give my mum her painkillers. I'm hated. I'm hated where Graham is. In fact, the staff pretty much blank me. And there um, is that... Because I make waves. There is that fear of mm. what are the repercussions. Yeah, I do so think about that. I don't th- I think you're being harsh on yourself, really, to say that you're... Um, this. We're talking about identity. Yeah. We could, ha- we could have a different conversation where we talk about all the good things. So, no, don't... It's okay. You're, do- <laughs> you're doing good. Um, but I think it's good to have those conversations where... You know, we we can talk about because if, if you only talk about the good stuff, the the good stuff doesn't need improving right now. The bad stuff needs improving yeah, right definitely. now. Definitely, but nobody wants to have those difficult conversations. So no. So I asked. So I've got a few points here, um, and I will come back to um, the question I asked on Instagram yesterday. And I was having a look at identity and online and thinking, you know, is it helpful? Is it not helpful? What are people saying? And one of the things was, one of the articles I read was about how um, stereotypes and judgments can often um, be interpreted incorrectly. So the example was, you've got a promiscuous female and, you know, you think that she's, you know, a lower person. And actually... Her motivation is wanting to get married. So she's just wanting to find a partner. She should, yeah. she might not be going about it the right way. Um, and I can kind of see that, how someone would be so desperate to, like, you know, get with someone. Um, and there's that, you know, desire to fill a void in that person's life. So I can kind of see that. So I can kind of agree with, with that. Um, stereotypes give limited growth and assumptions. So for i guess if people have expectations of you so if they are aware you're a drug addict do they expect you to only perform to a five or only um you know so not put as much effort in and i think that can possibly be for both like you it's a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm, like definitely yeah you know they think I'm a, a this or that or the other, so I'm not going to go to that photography course. Mm. I'm not going to get on that bus. And then the the person who's having that conversation or judgment kind of thinks, well, look, they're not doing this and they're not doing that. So I think having that limited growth... Yeah, definitely. It's, yeah, it's very impactful. Because uh, of these labels that we... Mm. And, you know, I remember when people were saying, like, oh, labels are so unhelpful and that w- that was, like, the thing... And now it feels like everyone wants a label. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> How true. many more labels can we have? Um, another example was children. So, well, that's the smart one. Well, that's the naughty one. Like, what's going to happen with those children? You know, you, you're going to... Um, possibly the naughty one might decide, well, I'll prove you wrong. I've been guilty of saying children of a certain name always tend to be, you know, <laughs> children who've been named a certain name. Uh, boys come to mind. Always are often naughty <laughs> yeah 
um, couple of little boys come to mind, Mark and Harry. Mark and Harry. <laughs> Two names. I don't think but I know any Marks or Harrys. Really cheeky <laughs> kids that I've taught often Marks and Harrys were um, and I wonder if cheekily you, naughty. I wonder if the inner child in you comes out, the playfulness comes out with you when you um, connect with Marks and Harrys. Yeah. So then they respond to you in a child playful way. Yeah. And then that reinforces... Yeah, I'm thinking of experience. certain kids that I've taught and uh, Darren and various... Oh, I, I, so many kids I remember. So, so many kids I remember um, teaching. Yeah, I was, I was very lucky to um, have a job like that, to have a career like that. I was very, very fortunate. Every day was different. When I was on supply for five years in the borough, um, Barnet, I worked in Barnet, and I was teaching up to year sixes. Um, I'd start every day, I'm a great storyteller, and I might not think so from this interview. Um, and I would start every day, they'd be on the mat, and... Uh, Put in the comments, do you think Lana's a good storyteller? <laughs> <laughs> they, um, we start the day if just got with... this far, I think they think you are. Well, with, it would be my journey to school. And I don't drive, so there would always be something that happened in my journey to school, and fond memories of that five years telling all those stories every day to different children in different schools. I think the supply for five years is probably my best memories, actually. And having to be on the ball all the time, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I remember being a couple of pages ahead in maths with the year sixes. <laughs> <laughs> maths was never my forte. <laughs> yeah, I remember being just kind of ahead of them. Yeah, but um, I feel sad that it ended the way it did. But it was not unexpected and um, I actually look back on my life uh, 70 years I've I've said a lot of stuff I've done a lot of things I've spoken out about a lot of injustices and I feel quite content with where I am you weren't going to ask me that but I actually reflecting now which I didn't expect to do during this session with you I feel, obviously, I, we made mistakes. Um, my husband and I made mistakes. But um, we all make mistakes, you know. I think content is a really good place to be. Mm. I talk about it with Rob a lot. Like, I feel very content. You know, we've got the dogs, we've got the house. Like, we love each other. We're able to communicate with each other. I, I feel very content. I don't feel like... In my head, it's almost like a treadmill, like just people running through life and it's like, you know, swiping right or yeah. like, you know, grabbing the fancy coffees in the morning and stuff like, oh, I don't know. I just couldn't think of anything worse. Just like, I like being content. Yeah, I, I've, as I say, I've got a, a immense sadness uh, about the situation with my husband and the way, um, the way we're living now, um, the circumstances that have propelled us to where we are now for me um very much living in the moment the way we probably all should always live never really knowing what's going to happen is quite exciting but overwhelming but challenging and I just feel like we're in the revolution <laughs> right now. Three years into the revolution. You're yeah. at the front with your flag. Yeah. Shall we go on to Instagram? Let's see what people are saying. Let's have a few minutes. 
Oh, it's gonna what s- do people make? Well, I'm let's not. Let's have a look. I don't know whether there'll be any interference with the signal or anything. I don't, don't even understand how this is going out, Jen, how this is all. <laughs> so in what way would you treat a drug ad- addict differently to a non-drug addict? <sighs> and do you think drug addicts are treated differently in health and social care was the question. Mm. So let me have a look at some of the responses. So I've got one here. My baby brother got hooked on prescription drugs and now buys them from wherever. Truly heartbreaking because he's cut himself off from friends and family. They're more vulnerable um, and weak, so they need support. Um, and I think, you know, vulnerable and weak, you know, when you are in that situation where you you do need help and you do need someone to support you, I don't think they're saying that they're weak because... Um, yeah, that made me think about my brother, actually, uh, when you said he cut himself off. My brother phoned me some years ago. We're on good terms now. I'm 70, 69. And he's actually done really well for himself. And um, he said, we'd rather not speak to you anymore because of your choices and cut me off. Um, In fact, it's only since my uncle died in July and I've had a big role in caring for my mum recently. Well, I've always cared for my mum, but I've literally had to live there half the week. That we've actually got close again, which is really quite nice. And actually, he's got much more of an insight um, into my actions and my choices mm-hmm. and uh, and he knows I'm doing this today <laughs> yeah. maybe he'll watch too well I don't know about that but <laughs> <laughs> we can try yeah yeah. Um, so I got yes I worked um, I worked for addiction even if they did not follow the rules oh so yes I worked for addiction even if they did not follow the rules they were still treated um, I don't know whether that's coming from a space of um, frustration of if they didn't follow, like you were saying, you had to be here on that time, or yeah, maybe I they mean, started we, to take. We again. wouldn't, unless you really, you know, misbehaved and didn't pick up your script and all sorts. You'd have to be really bad in their terms to kind of probably been kicked out of the service or be really rude when you went in there. I mean, there would. There's always a way to work out the problem that you've got at the time. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm just thinking back on something which, yeah. Do you want me to carry on? Or do it's no, yeah. you, you carry on, it's fine. So we've got, yes, there's a mental barrier which needs care as much as physical. Um, get back to childhood and work through traumas experienced. Uh, regardless of what they ingest, they are people too. Um, there's always a reason why they're addicted to something. Everyone should be loved. This is my I'm reading messages face. <laughs> Um, yes, they are seen um, as a nuisance and not really unwell. Doctors and nurses tend to treat them with contempt. Seen as weak, treated poorly. Fair comments, yeah. I'd say always be aware of lies. Addicts lie more. <laughs> I actually got accused of um, stealing my husband's tramadol prescription. Long story short, he after the brain injury, he um, he couldn't stay at home. It, affected the frontal lobe is uh, aggression violence and he was never violent he ended up in a care home and he'd been on tramadol for quite a long time he had a serious break in his leg and he'd been on it for quite a long time that prescription did not translate into the care home and even though it was issued by the gp not by the um, wdp the organization at the time 
I was accused by social services and WDP of stealing that prescription because I'm, a, I'm an addict and addicts steal. And um, I didn't even know tramadol was an opiate at that time. It's it's very easy as well. Like, um, yeah, it was Lorna. Yeah. Like with no kind of it, investigation. It, and it followed me around. And in fact, when he did, I got him out of the um, care home in March 2020 because obviously I was awake and I knew the government were going to shut everything down. And the organisation that were giving him methadone, which was in Enfield in London, um, put out a warning about me, came home, and when his script was being sorted out, the key worker, it was on a Zoom, said to me, I've got to put in one of six things about you, Lorna. I've never seen anything like this in my life. He said, this has never ever come up before. <coughs> and they were, I, it wasn't safe, I wasn't a safe, these various things. I had a real battle with the service to get this all removed. Um, stealing my husband's tramadol. Mm. Stolen his heroin in the past, but not his tramadol. <laughs> not all addicts are arseholes. Um, many are treated like they are. They're lost souls. Um, drug addicts are addicts because something's hurting them inside. Um, they don't allow them to cut down, come off when they want. Um, farmer needs addicts. Oh, that's a good one. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> what are we on now? Six. Um, my opinion is no one grows up wanting to be an addict. And I think you said that before. Yeah. No one wakes up one day. It's very good. The heroin's very effective for numbing pain. Mm -hmm. Very, very effective. It's a very, um, when you first start using, it's um, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and some people say you get addicted after one hit took me about six weeks i would say i've never i i couldn't and i couldn't because i just i think i would enjoy it too much yeah if i'm honest that's why i never took cocaine i never ever tried cocaine i never i never i didn't want to like it mm. i think i'd like it too much and i think i would you know i don't think i'd be able to to not have that mm. so I mean, not that I'm kind of thinking like, oh, I'm, I'm missing out not taking it, but certainly that's something that saved saved me from um, trying because, you know, definitely during teenage years, people were. I had access to it, but I just... Well, I'd gone down the typical route of smoking hash <clears throat> and um, taking speed, drinking VP wine and Dimerol, which was a cough medicine. I don't know what it's. And then I got on a bus one day and took myself down to Piccadilly Circus. 14 and a half, nearly 15. How easy is it to get access? Oh, it was really easy back then. Um, these days, heroin isn't heroin anymore. It's a cup full of crap. I think they reckon it's only about 8%. Um, and also another problem now, which hasn't really hit this country as much as America, is fentanyl. Mm -hmm. And as a nurse, you know, fentanyl is about 80 times stronger than heroin. And what the dealers tend to do in America, they put little s stamps on their gear and then every few um, wraps, you've got fentanyl in it and then when someone dies, it's really good gear, you want it. And um, it, thankfully, it's not really taken off in this country. I think it's a bit of a, a, bit of a deal between the uh, Chinese government and the American government. That's just my opinion. Is that another podcast? To uh, flood America. <laughs> You'll to be a regular on kill it. Kill and undermine the youth. But, uh, that's a whole other ball game. 
Um, yeah. Yes, very much stigma and any health issues they present um, as a case as if it's self-inflicted. Oh, very much so. Um, yes, 100% they are. Any department in a busy London hospital. Um, they are treated better, someone says. A number of drug addicts have mental health issues, um, so I'd focus on treating that. Yes, they are made to feel <coughs> as though they are deceitful. Um, wouldn't treat them differently. Um, wouldn't treat them differently, but people say it's their own fault. Yeah, so there's quite a few people saying... Um, someone says, I suspect they are treated differently. We all have different needs and should be treated accordingly. Yes, I think there are. There's a huge stigma attached to addiction. Um, this, is an, this is an established fact um, in substance misuse research. I watch patients get attacked. Um, two seconds. Yes, it's looked at as if um, you've made your bed and I'll lie in it when it's actually a disease. So, yeah, there's... Lots of comments there. Listening to Gabor Mate um, yesterday, um, he was having a discussion with Tim Ferriss um, on uh, his podcast. He's kind of an entrepreneur, but use, has used a lot of drugs. And he was talk They were talking about the genetic aspect of it. And um, Mate doesn't actually believe it's it's genetic. I mean, that's a whole other podcast as well. <laughs> talking about that, it was really interesting um, listening to. And he does a great one of those little cartoony. Um, things jordan peterson does them as oh, well yes, you just, you and there's, there's a re i sent you it it's a really good one on addiction and it really um we'll put the link in the description it really gets to the nitty-gritty of it's just i just re it really resonated with me i thought it was really good i'll um, put the link on the yeah um, i think i think it's short it's punchy it's a cartoon and it kind of says it how it is so i um yeah i'm interested in, in his um yeah, he does a lot of interesting stuff with um, uh, mushrooms and all stuff like that. I did a lot of interesting stuff with mushrooms back in the past too, but not anymore. Are labels helpful or unhelpful? What is a label you give yourself and is it helpful or unhelpful? Um, um, I'm happy with female as I'm born female. ADHD, yes, at 36, it's made my whole life made sense. So for that individual being aware that he's got ADHD yeah having that now, label yeah mm. um, and I think it's again it's like what I was saying about the judgment and how people treat you afterwards you know and how um so human is the only label we need unhelpful unhelpful dyslexic is a label someone gives themselves I think it's helpful as long as it's not overplayed and I think in response to that what my take is what I get really frustrated about is when people jump on the bandwagon so if you think about um, the gender dysmorphia at the moment and there are some people who are really going to be struggling with that who are going to receive a less degree of help now a less amount of help because it's become so mainstream yeah I agree mm. and you know and I think with depression as well you know I, I had one experience of depression once I qualified and I think that was because of all the confusion. And by the time I qualified, I just like, just, I just kind of fell into a pile, really. And I think, you know, people don't know necessarily know the difference or don't communicate the difference between like sad, low in mood, depressed. So I think that a lot of people who are temporarily sad are saying depressed. And then that kind of takes it away, it dilutes yeah. the impact of it. 
Um, so yes, that would be my take on about it being overplayed. Um, so massive, massively give people a label and that's what they become. Um, they're irrelevant. It's trauma. Yeah, I feel like I'm almost a self-fulfilling <clears throat> prophecy, if you like, because I've been in treatment. It's probably 35 years. So I think that's helped to reinforce. I've always been someone that's always had to go to mm-hmm. an organisation to get this drug that keeps me enables me to get out of bed in the morning and function Mm -hmm. you know and obviously now I'm frightened to come off it I'm frightened to be I did try and come off um during just before I met you during the lockdown I was so frustrated with the organization um I was so frustrated with the system I didn't want to be part of it anymore and I stayed off it for four days five days and some people who are listening to this will say well two milligrams subtext it's nothing it's nothing it's still attached to the receptors in your brain and there is a lot of uh fear uh psychology uh and especially as i'm someone who reads scientific papers like all day long about all sorts of things not just um about subutex um so it's i think having been in that situation for so long does help to make me define myself see myself probably more as the addict that that was that good teacher Mm -hmm. that really good teacher so it's only now since we've been talking about this i've really started to explore this so it's um it's it's as if i need i feel as if i need to shed a skin Mm -hmm. the addict skin if you like um so this is quite um uplifting for me quite refreshing to uh explore this have this conversation yeah and i guess um what i would like is if someone was listening to this and maybe you know someone said about their their brother who kind of cut themselves off and maybe they've cut somebody off yeah and that's very hurtful it is i've cut people off in the past but that's not through lack of trying. But then when it when it comes to a stage where it's just too painful for me... Then you have to. So and maybe think, that's how my brother felt. Yeah, maybe. Maybe it yeah. was just too painful. He's never been acquainted with drugs. He didn't have the experience that I had when I was four years old. Um, and, you know, when you discover attachment theory and you do start to read about attachment theory... My mum hasn't really talked about leaving me at that home in uh, Broadstairs, but she did recently. And she said, they took you in off the doorstep. I didn't go in. I didn't see where you were going. I didn't see where you were gonna sleep. I didn't see where you were gonna eat. You were four. And all I can remember is you screaming, mommy. And I feel sad for that little girl. Mm. (laughs) I really do. And I do believe that's what led me into um, addiction and seeking that numbingness you know um yeah and it's only really now i'm older that i'm feel as if i'm separating myself a bit from it it's Mm -hmm. like and if you've held on to it for that long as well i wonder what that means for you moving forwards yeah it's um quite freeing one of the first things my therapist I was talking and 
was talking about always having to have the um, doors open, the curtains, can never shut my curtains, and um, the light on at night. And she said, you, you need an escape route. I'd never thought of that I needed an escape route. My youngest daughter always comes in and even shuts the curtains when she visits. I say, don't, you can't, don't shut the curtains. So I suppose that does hark back. But um, I think I'm probably thinking more about it at this stage in my life than I ever have. Mm, probably down to you. <laughs> <laughs> Are there any questions that you think I should have asked? Mm, no, I don't think so, really. I, it's an endless subject, you know, and the, the depths within each one of us. I mean, it's so diverse. You could talk forever about it. I think I've probably said enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is not uh, sitting in a studio, which is in a van called a studio. Hope. It's uh, pretty amazing with the nurse, that nurse who asked questions, <laughs> who I found divinely I believe <laughs> like everyone else I've connected with on Instagram it's been a that platform for me has uh, had a huge impact in my life positive mm. yeah yeah positive and think, impact you know social media it gets a lot of um, negative press but for me it's about how you use social yeah, media definitely. don't be used by social mm. media um, so yeah that seems like a good place to end, to end. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you, Jenna. Well, let's go and grab some food. Yep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thank you, Lorna. Cheers.